Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Hello there, and welcome to this special, special, special episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you guys are all staying grounded in all of the madness and the chaos and all of the hurt that's been sort of expressed uh, through our African-American brethren and sisters and just the communities at large and how so much pain is being sort of outwardly expressed and shared through our different mediums. And um, I wanted to, in in the art of really celebrating different perspectives and and bringing out sort of perspectives that can allow all of us to really lean into and understand what African-Americans go through on a very visceral level, I wanted to bring back one of my favorite episodes that I did a few years ago, actually, with my man, Mr. Andre Norman. So Andre's conversation aired in 2019, and it's an incredible story of beating the odds and the system to create extraordinary impact. So the U.S. has one of the largest prison populations in the world with around 1 in 100 Americans in jail. According to the 2014 NAACP statistics, African Americans accounted for 34% of the total prison population. The black community is incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white communities. And Andre Norman was a part of one of those statistics. Two decades ago, not only was Andre serving a 100-year prison sentence, he also ran all of the gang activity in that prison. You could say that jail was his destiny. As a kid, he felt unwanted, and with the system against him, he never really leaned into his true potential. Seeing no other option, Andre followed a life filled by drugs, alcohol, depression, harm, and ultimately crime. Prison is supposed to be a correctional facility, but most prisoners aren't corrected. Jail fails to tackle the issues that led to crime, which makes Andre's story so remarkable. Andre um, ended up in a program with a Jewish rabbi during his time in prison that taught him how to be human and to change his own life. You know, Andre's life is one of impact and giving now, and his mission really teaches individuals and corporations how to turn any situation around. But for me, this particular episode, this particular reminder at this point in time is so important. There's never been a more important time for us to recognize our privileges, to be grateful for our privileges, and to not belittle anyone else's in a sense where, you know, I have, I'm a very privileged human being. I'm an extremely privileged human being. You know, Indians in America have been supported and given structures to really thrive and create through our successes. But black America isn't like that. So I I really appreciate Andre and I really appreciate this opportunity to share his story with all of you. And I hope that you guys can look and listen to the story through a different lens, a lens of compassion and understanding, a lens that doesn't need to change anything, but simply be aware and grateful for your own privileges and own your privileges. I think one of the worst things we can do is not own our privileges. When you don't own your privilege, you don't do anything about it. And all of us have a privilege to be to be a voice in this fight, to, to give support where we can, and to create from a place of power and love. So enjoy this episode, uh, and um, I'm going to be doing my best to bring on more people of color, 
we bring on more people of color and really share their stories um, in however way I can. And um, yeah, and just create a safe space for all of us as a community to thrive and love each other throughout the chaos. So enjoy this episode. Uh, and without further ado, here is the amazing Mr. Andre Norman. Cheers. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to another episode of Stay Grounded, man. Andre is doing some slick moves on the other side. Man, I need to get some of you in over here. How you doing, Mr. Mr. Andre? Man, life is wonderful, man. I'm hanging out with my buddy. I'm inspired. The vision is popping. My passion's going. We're going to give to the people, and we're going to keep grounded. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm uh, first time we met, I think you were giving a talk at the, at the EO Houston event. And, um, and you know what inspired me most is that when I, when I talked to you, you said you came to Houston for the kids and the EO event just happened to be something that was, that was an afterthought. So tell me about the role. Like, why are you so passionate about helping kids and why do you feel like you resonate with them in a way? Well, my passion for helping kids is easy. I used to be an unwanted kid and unwanted is different than neglected, different than abused, is different than mistreated. It's just like you don't count. So it's like you're almost invisible. So I kind of I feel like I grew up as an invisible child. And my mother and sisters and brothers would tell you there was a house full of people all the time. But I just never felt connected. No, I just felt left out. So I grew up with that mindset and the mindset that you develop as a child plays out in your adult life. All the things you do now are permeated and based on the lessons you learned as a child. So if you were loved it as a child, if you were included as a child, if you were nurtured as a child, then therefore you should be that now. If you were mistreated as you were abused as a child, you're subject to become an abuser. But if you were invisible as a child, you're the guy who plays the background, who doesn't assert himself, doesn't try to grow to his greatest strength or her greatest potential because you don't believe that people can see you. I want kids to understand that they should be seen and they're worthy of being seen. And regardless of mom and dad looking at you, you still matter. And I want parents to know that a few choice words can make a difference in your child's life. Don't worry about the gift that you buy them, the house that you live in. It's the words that you speak that make the difference. Mm, I love that, man. You also mentioned something in the speech uh, that I was particularly drawn into. That was the idea of if you're a wanderer, there's no way you can be successful in life. Can you explain that concept? If you're a wanderer in a sense of you don't put roots down, you don't actually buy into a system or to a place, you don't you can't really fully give up yourself. So if a sports analogy, if you join a team, but you don't really participate or practice or show up, you can't really be part of the team. You're part of a community, but you don't come out the house. Your house and the neighborhood doesn't make you part of the community. Yeah. So people come to jobs, and they don't really engage. And again, it goes to trauma and issues from their childhood and their past of things that have happened that might um, make this possible. But until you say, you know something, I got to put my feet down, I got to get grounded, and I got to dig in someplace and grow roots. Now, growing roots doesn't mean you stay in Houston or Dallas or Memphis. It means you're growing roots into yourself. You're building yourself up. I wandered for years, and I belonged to nothing substantial. I made no major gains. 
even though I had what I would call success. It wasn't until I sat still, focused on me, got my life, my emotions, my hurt, my projections, my potential grounded, then I could grow. Then I could connect to folks and be, I wasn't always looking, oh, this guy wants to hurt me. This guy wants to cheat me. This guy doesn't care about me, which was a tape that used to play in my head because I thought I was invisible. Now, tell me about your time in prison, actually, because that, I think, is one of the most grounding things for me to hear and me to experience. One, because you had a moment in prison that allowed you to sort of see a different path. Why do you think that, well, let me talk to me about that experience, but then beyond that, for people who aren't in those extreme situations where they're either a rock bottom situation or a place where change is almost in, and it's not really a thought, how do they create these rock bottom experiences or feelings so that they can start to change their lives too? I would say to the people looking for a rock bottom experience, I equated to somebody who jumped out of a, with a parachute. You can hit rock bottom at 30,000 feet, 20,000 feet, 5,000 feet, sidewalk. It's the same difference. A lot of people wait until they hit the sidewalk and they call it rock bottom. You're allowed to hit rock bottom at 20,000 feet if you pull the parachute. There's no law that you must plummet to the earth before you pull the parachute. It's actually too late in most instances. Your rock bottom isn't your end. Your rock bottom is when you figure out you need to pull the parachute. Tell me about that, though. Like needing to pull the parachute. Somebody's life's out of control. They're drinking. They're depressed. They're, they're on drugs. Or they're just self-harming. And they're free-falling. They're free-falling from 40,000 feet out of a plane. Now, they have a parachute. So there are people out here like myself, like yourself, who want but you have to, at one level, say, I want help. So that's the parachute, asking for help. So at 50,000 feet, your life sucks. Everything's against you. At 40,000 feet, it's the same. And it doesn't get any better or worse the lower you come. It just means you have less time for people to rush in to save you. So if you hit the parachute and say, hey, at 40,000 feet, I need help, it's a lot easier for me to get to you. And there's a lot less damage or crisis control I need to do. Because you're not fully damaged. You're not crushed. If you actually bounce off the sidewalk and then say, I need help, the help is drastically different. Because now you have broken limbs, you have split spine, spleen. You're just a total mess aside from the So how do you know when to pull the parachute? Like for me, I mean, you know, if, if I'm falling and I have a parachute on, I'm going to assume it's working. So why would I pull it too early in, in, in that sense? If you're falling, that means you're in trouble. This isn't skydiving. This is falling. Okay. So you're in trouble. So ask for help at any stage along the way. People believe they need to bounce off the sidewalk before they ask for help. Okay. The help that you get at 30000 is no different than the help you're going to get at 10000 But the help you get after you bounce off the sidewalk is drastically different yeah. because there's additional trauma added to it. So my thing that people who are stressed out, who are in straits, who can't find their way out, you don't have to crash a car into a pole. You don't have to be arrested after OD. You don't have to be beaten or have to beat somebody before you say, I now need help. No, you needed help before you crashed into the pole. 
You needed help before you started doing drugs again. You needed help before you went to that bar one more time. Getting drunk doesn't make asking for help easier or better. You needed help before you walked into the bar. How do you find the awareness, though? Awareness is you're depressed. See, you know your life is out of control. You just believe there's, there's no help available for you. Or you have the invisible person complex that nobody's going to care, nobody's going to come. Mm. So I knew my life was out of control. I just believe nobody cared that my life was out of control. My saying used to be, you can't separate me from me, so it doesn't matter. If I crash into a pole, if I fall down the stairs, if I get locked up, it doesn't matter because I'm with the only person who cares about me, me. Now, that level of self-reliance, though, do you think that was a strength as you were starting to change your life or do you think it got in the way? Everything that takes you down can help you come up. All the bad energies and the things like the being isolated, the being institutionalized, the being alone, the used to not having friends around me, all those things work to my benefit now. Those the hardest thing for people to do, stay home and focus. Mm. So what I do, what I've been doing my whole life, sitting in a room by myself, focused. So all those years I spent on, in my room on punishment as a child, all those years I spent in maximum security isolation in prison, and then I'm sitting, I've been sitting in my house all day. I've been here all day. I haven't gone outside. So with that, I don't feel like I need to go outside. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. This is like I'm missing out syndrome. So I got to go to that party. I got to be at that event. I don't have that because I have that invisible man complex at one level, which frees me from having to be at the cool party or having to keep up with the Joneses. I never kept up with the Joneses. I was never in this. So I don't have a closet full of stuff that is impressive to other people. It's almost like you started being, you're like grateful for all the things that you might have not been grateful for in the past. How did you start to see your, your life through that lens where you saw all the things that brought you down or now the things that are bringing you up? Because that alone is, is, is pretty aware. And if I think most people had that awareness, they wouldn't feel as bad about their past or they wouldn't beat themselves up for old mistakes or any of the, the circumstances that they have. The story I'm going to share with you that best illustrates that is there was two kids in West Louisville back in the 40s, Cassius Clay and his brother. And they cut lawns all summer so they can buy a bike. They buy the bike and they ride the bike around the neighborhood sharing it. They go to the movies. They park the bike out in front of the movie theater and they go inside. When they came outside, the bike was gone. The older brother was upset. Cassius was definitely upset. And he didn't become a loud mouth and a big mouth as an adult. He started as a kid. And the brother said, we're going to walk to the police station to file a report. And all the way to the police station, Cassius Clay was like, I'm going to beat the guy. I want to beat the guy. He stole my bike. I cut 100. This ain't right. This ain't fair. They get to the police station. The older brother goes to file the report. The guy says, well, the guy that takes that report downstairs in the basement. They walk down in the basement, and the brother's trying to file the report with the officer. And Cassius is like, I want to beat him. I want to beat him. Then the officer looked at the little kid. He could have said, you're two black boys in the 40s in Kentucky in a police station. Get out. He didn't do that. He saw the kid in pain and he spoke to his pain. He said, well, you want to beat this guy up, right? He said, yeah, bring him to me. I'm going to beat him. So I got a question. Can you fight? And the little kid was like, what do you mean? He said, well, if I bring him to you, can you win the fight? And Cassius had never really been in fights before. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You take my boxing class. So when you catch the kid, you can win the fight. They shook hands. He joined the class. Out of that gym came Cassius Clay, Olympic champion, soon to be known as Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time. 
Muhammad Ali died a few years back and the world stood still when they buried him. The entire world, like none other, stood still for this man. And if we can go get Muhammad Ali now and bring him down here and put him on his podcast, we can go get the boy who stole his bike and put him on his podcast sitting next to him. I can assure you, Muhammad would not hit that man. Like he said once upon a time, he would get up, shake that man's hand and hug him and said, what you did made me. And I want to thank you. I'd have never thought in my worst moment of losing my bike, such a gift could come out of that. But that man still in that bike fueled the energy and the passion from a little boy in West Louisville to the greatest of all time. You have to learn to see what's always not great for you, be better for you. Going to prison. I didn't like growing up poor. I didn't like growing up without a dad. But these are the things, the experiences that help me save lives right now. So I wouldn't give it back. I don't like it. Didn't want to go through it. But I wouldn't give it back because I see the power and the blessing of the curse, if that's what you want to call it. So the curse of having this bike stolen transported him into being angry and it being passionate and being on fire, which took him down a path that made him the greatest of all time. Had that boy not stolen his bike, Muhammad Ali just been another dead black guy in West Louisville. But that one bad incident that at the time was the worst that never happened to him, that he would gladly say, no, I want my bike back. You have to go through to get through. Mm. You can't get through without going through it. So I went through a childhood that was tough. I went through prison that was awful. But now I look back on those years of segregation. I look back on those years my dad didn't show up. I look back on all the dysfunction and chaos. And I see what it gave me the insights to do. I solve world problems now. And I solve those world problems and I solve business problems based on my experiences. You can't get one without the other. Man, you're like the king of one-liners. I love it, brother. I love it. So Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay, if he at any given point, because that journey is going to have ups and downs, right? Oh, like yeah. He's taking the journey. He's taking the ups and downs. I mean, at any given point, it's easy to not see the end of the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. What do you think drives people to keep pushing? And why do you think people don't push long enough to experience the light at the end of the tunnel? I would say Muhammad Ali, when he won the title, and it was subsequently stripped from him, and during those times when he didn't have his title, I don't think he saw himself as going down as one of the greatest people in the history of the world. I don't think he saw it at that moment. And but not giving up is what made that happen. Had he, you can always give up at any time. You can always give up and you're guaranteed to lose or get no more than what you have. When you persevere and you push through, that's where the greatness comes in. If you want to be great and you can, if you want to be amazing, you can. If you want to be world renowned, you can. It just comes with not giving up. If you want to be average you want to be ordinary, you want to fit in, want to live a decent life, get a decent tombstone, then quit. Settle. It's that simple. If you settle, you get what you settle for. It's going to be less than what you deserve. You were born to be amazing. You were born to be spectacular. But status quo says work 40 hours, punch a clock, save so much money in this bank, go to there on vacation, don't do anything different. It's all preset. Yeah. We watch media. 
That's why I love podcasts. That's why I couldn't wait to do this. I watch TV news. TV news is not for me. TV news is on for advertising. You yeah. take all advertising away, there's no more news. Yeah. Every TV show, every article, every news show, every TV, oh, it's all for advertising. The advertisers dictate what goes on TV. So advertisers just want to sell you stuff. They don't want to inform you of anything. They, don't want to, they just want to get you to buy stuff. They need you to sit in front of this TV, pick, sit in front of the newspaper. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about engaging you to sit long enough to sell you something. The only reason why we get mail delivered to our house is for circulars. They fund the U.S. Post Office. We send emails. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so true, man. Um, but let me, let me say this, though. Did you always have the grit to keep pushing? No, I quit a ton of times. <laughs> so when, did, when, was, when was the last straw for you? And Because and, it's... I totally get the idea, and I, and I and I think you're right. I mean, the second you give up, the second is the second you stop betting on yourself. But I feel like you have to give up enough times to realize that giving up is not the choice. Well, oh yeah, I gave up. I've given up tons of times. The last time I gave up was probably a year and a half ago. I've been speaking since 2001, flying around the world on stages from Saudi Arabia to Africa to Honduras to the White House to. You name it, I'm on stage, I'm doing it, I'm loving it. I'm a consultant, I'm a speaker, my life is great. I hit my personal roadmap, my little bump in the road, and life goes not the way I planned it, because no plan I write actually succeeds. It's only the plan God writes. So my plan takes a detour, and I sit home and I'm depressed. My life sucks, I don't want to do this no more. My speaking career, I end, speaking's over, stuff's over. And I'm just sitting, I had to go through this little 18-month window of depression and stress. And when I came out the other side and I said, I'm fixed and better, but I didn't want to go back and speak again. So I went and got me a little job doing real estate. I'm making decent money. I'm living. And I'm just like, okay, I bought into the matrix. (laughs) And then I had six of my friends, Keith Alper, Rusty Keeley, David Spence, John Rulin, John O'Leary, and Dan Curran. They flew me to St. Louis. They sat me in a the room. They said, what are you doing? I said, I'm selling real estate in Atlanta. They said, that's not who you are. I'm like, yeah, and it is now. And they're like, no, we're not letting you settle. And they said, you're going to get back up. You're going to get back on that stage. You're going to get your life in order. You're going to go out and do what you were born to do. We, that's your gift. And they said, we're going to kick you and drag you until you get back out there. And they help. I got six super, super fabulous people who also have to be super fabulous businessmen holding me accountable. And they didn't do it for me. But they said, we're going to help you do it. And I got back on track. Then I bumped back into my Cameron Harold's a great friend. And that's how I got you down the same. I got this one and this one. And Cameron came home. Oh, Dre, where you been? Out of sight, out of mind. He did not love me. He just didn't see me. He has his own life. He has his own yeah. stuff. So I started re-engaging with all the same people from before who loved me before. And I saw, damn, they are my friends. They do care about me. They do miss me. And I started rebuilding my speaking career and my outreach. And in the last year, since they've taken me on, I've gone from zero to 100 real quick, to quote Drake. (laughs) I think that was his. It was six people who don't look like me or live near me or hang out with me that love me and to not quit it or to not. I mean, I was, I, I was like, yo man, hell with this. I'm good. 
I just sit down here and go to the local bar, go to the local store, go to the same barbershop, take the same train. They're like, that's not your life, man. And that's what good friends will do for you. Having that support system is so key. I don't know. I've experienced in my own life the ups and downs. And I feel like if I explain the downs to anybody who doesn't get it, they're just going to be like, oh, you're good, man. They're going to justify it. They're going to sympathize with it. They're going to they're, they're going to make me hear exactly what I want to hear. But baking in those those friendships and those relationships and those structures so that it's almost like your friends were like a safety net in a way. No, they went past safety net. They came down to the ravine and got me. <laughs> I, I tell you about the jumped out of the helicopter. I jumped out of the helicopter and I was on the sidewalk. And I'm like, I'm cool. And you're not physically dead, but you've technically given up and you're not applying yourself. When you have a gift and you have things that you're in you that can do and be greater and you're not using them. We, my mom, I love my mom. My mom is one of the smartest people I know. She's one of the most talented people I know. Mm. She didn't get a chance to exercise her talents because she had six kids early. Yeah. So now she's 75 this year. And I'm seeing somebody at 75 who had a good life, raised six wonderful kids, but she didn't get to exercise all of her talents. And she's realizing it's not fair. And it's not only not fair, it's not redoable. So mm. her next 20 years or so is going to be spent saying I didn't exercise all of my talents. Les Brown says it the best. She's going to take to her grave yeah. a lot of great things that she could have, should have, would have done. And if she just, she's in a place now at 75 and she can't do. So I don't want to be my mom in a sense that the stuff that I can get done that will make a difference. I didn't get done because I, chose to sell real estate or I chose to quit. And again, quitting is part of life, but not getting back up is the other. This is not how many times you fall down and how many times you get up. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get up than others, but you can't stay on there forever. Yeah, man, that's, I, you're speaking. I see my mom. My mom is doing real estate now. Emma <laughs> gave me my own bobblehead. I got I like official bobblehead though. <laughs> That's me. Game is strong. Bellhead game is strong. No, it's it's amazing. My mom, you know, she's in her she's in her fifties now, and she she felt like that for a while, where she she didn't really have that that thing that she was working towards. She felt like she was just a great mom, and I've always we love me. I mean, my brother loved the hell out of my mom, um, but she never had that thing for herself. And now she's doing real estate, and you know, she's pushing herself and she's getting after it. And I see that fire, and I see it, man. I mean, it doesn't matter what age you are. No, I like yeah, I feel like age is just a number when it comes to to living a purpose driven and passionate life. I think I think there's something else that voice in your head that you need to, or even that voice in your heart, you need to start listening to, and that voice in your head, you need to start just throwing out the window. So let's go back. You said you and your brother love your mom above and beyond. How many hours a week do you generally spend with your mother? Not enough. No, that's not a question. That's not an answer. I'm going to put you on blast. <laughs> no, put me on blast. No, this is good. This is good. I call my mom once a week. No, 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 no. And that's how many times you call her. How many, in an average week, how many hours do you spend with your mother? Physical hours. Do you live in the same city? No, I don't live in the same city as my mom. Then, so in a given week, it's probably zero. Yeah. From her perspective, gave 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 18 years to you and your brother. This isn't to make you feel bad. This is everybody's kid. 
You oh, get yeah. grown, you go to college, you go off, you have a family. And now this is how life works. So, but now she's home and she gets zero hours. So you can love her, but for zero hours, for, the, for those hours in a week, she's home alone or she's, my kids love me. That's great. Now what's in it for me? What's my end of this? So she needs 10, 20, 30 hours a week of something that's going to make her happy. Yeah. She, she's happy that you're doing well, that you're living your life, that you're in Houston. I'm not saying move and go home, but she has to fill that void. She was a great mom for 18 plus years. Now that yeah. job's over. She yeah. didn't prepare for the second job, which was living her life, but she's in it now. She found it. Well, let me ask you something. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. Uh, you don't ever have to apologize for putting me on blast like that. I appreciate it. W- what would you tell people so that they don't make that same mistake where they forget the second job that happens later on in life or forget the, the job for themselves, right? Or even the sense where like when people, you said, like, you know, Les Brown said, like, you, I think that's like the, the richest part of the world is actually the graveyard. I think that was the quote or something like right. that. And when you think about that, how do you, for, if somebody hasn't really pursued their dream or hasn't really pursued their life until a later date, how does one forgive themselves and actually start doing it? Cause I feel like most people, they resent more than they just kind of forgive and do. And so what are your thoughts on forgiveness in general around that? I'll use something that most people can equate to, equate to. It's a weight struggle. So I want to lose weight just because, and the older I get, the harder it gets. So the older, the harder, the harder it gets, the less I want to do it. So I start justifying and making excuses. I can do it. There are people older than me who've done it, younger than me that've done it, heavier than me that've done it. So the question is not, can it be done? The question is, do I want to put forth the effort? And the thing is, I didn't do it when I was 30, but I didn't have to because genetics took over. I didn't do it when I was 20. I didn't have to. Genetics took over. Now I'm 50. I need to do it, but I haven't built the muscle memory or the fortitude or the the habits to get it done. So now it's twice the challenge for me. So I'm going to seminars, I'm going to clinics, I'm going to all this external stuff because I never built in a small habit of walking. At 50, I'm going to need to have this habit. Let me start building it now. I did it with one thing. My dad went to the hospital when he was 45. Now it's probably 20-something. He called me and said, son, my, my dad's dramatic. The doctor told me I can't eat pork, I can't eat, drink alcohol, and I need to get rid of the salt. And he said, if I do this, I'll live an extra 20 years or extra whatever. I made a deduction. Well, I've heard this enough times from enough 40-plus-year-old men that if they get rid of salt, alcohol, and pork at 47, it'll extend their life. I said, well, what would it do for me if I stopped now? So when I was 20, I stopped using salt. Cut it right out of my diet. And I cut a lot of other stuff out of my diet. And here I am now. I cut alcohol. And I cut salt. When I got to be 47, they said, you're in perfect health. Keep moving relative to that. But I never built in a 20-minute walk a day. So now I cannot eat salt. I cannot drink alcohol. But I can't walk 20 minutes a day. Mm, So for the people who are going through, you can look. Life is easy to forecast and research. You're going to want to lose weight when you're 50 and you're 25 now. Start walking 20 minutes a day. You're going to want to do X when you're 60. Start doing a little bit of 20 minutes a day at 23, 24 will pay crazy dividends at 50. Yeah. So almost just start small along the way. So if you have whatever, whether it's getting in shape or whether it's a positive habit or whether it's even pursuing a passion, do something small every day. 30 years later, you're a winner. 
I like that. How many people told you I'm a, I'm a overnight success after 17 years? That's right. <laughs> You've heard that before, right? Yeah, the, yeah, entrepreneur, the entrepreneur says, yo, I've been at this 17 years. I became overnight success yesterday. That's great. So it's the same concept. If you're a mom or a dad or you're even a young person, you can look out into the future and say, well, what am I going to be 20 years from now? Cameron Harold has a book called Vivid Vision. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah. Cameron's book's about your business. You can do the same thing with your life and go out beyond three to five years. Say, okay, well, how many people did I had? I had somebody sat me down at 25 and said, listen, there's an 80% chance you're going to be overweight at 50 based on your eating habits and your lifestyle. If you walk 20 minutes a day, imagine I was in prison. So that's real easy. You walk 20 minutes a day, you get that habit. You're going to need it then. And I had to develop that habit at 26. Well, I developed some good ones, but not all of the ones. So I don't have any high blood pressure. I don't have any liver problems. I just got a little bit of a gut. <laughs> what, would you, what would you, with the, with the knowledge and wisdom you have now, tell your 26-year-old self? 26-year-old self? Definitely get your 20-minute walk on a day. <laughs> it, was great that you did, it was great that you got rid of cigarettes. It was great you got rid of alcohol. It was great you got rid of salt. You needed to add one more thing to that. You took away stuff. You needed to add the walking. But my 26-year-old self, I just said read more and ask more questions. Where come from them? I came from a place of dumb people ask questions. That's what I was taught. If you're asking questions, there's something wrong with you. There are no dumb questions. There's just people who need to know more and more depth in depth. So ask more questions, read more books. Definitely. For me, therapy was important. So therapy, I, if I could have done therapy sooner and more deeply. So my last, that had been four, six years, my last six years, I'd have done way more therapy and counseling. Mm. Way more. Because we have, un, I had unresolved issues in my life. Stuff from childhood, to stuff from teenage years, stuff from prison. And the sooner I got it under wraps, was the better my life became. So the longer I waited, the more stress I was under. So had I, if I could go back, counseling, therapy, number one, reading, number two, writing. I would have loved to do a writing class. One of my biggest weaknesses now is my writing. My fourth one would have been um, future pace, my health. I had a vivid vision chart for my health. You don't think about being healthy at 27 because you're just naturally healthy. At least I was. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important distinction. You know, when, you, when everything is going gravy in your life or when you have it, you take it for granted because there's other things in your life. Like when I'm, I'm 27 right now. So in my life, like I may have the health, I've got the, you know, like my relationships are great, but like career is what I focus on. See, there's a difference between health and youth. You figure that out at 51. So you have youth right now. That's okay. not health. You're okay. just young. So young people look like that. I used to be young too. And I look like that. When you take youth and put it to age, it, that is different. So you're not thinking about Rogaine. At 27, I had a whole head of hair. I wasn't thinking about what wait, <laughs> hair loss products. I never paid attention to hair loss products. How about 40% of men are bald, whatever the number is. But you're not thinking about that because in your mind, it doesn't apply to you. Go look in your family history, how many people are bald or lost hair. And say, well, if there's small things you can do now, the little shampoo or the soaps that you can use now, it will change for four, at 43, you don't lose your hair. I what never is- thought about losing my hair at 27. What impact do you think doing therapy at 26 would have had versus doing it the time you started? I'd have been further along the line. The sooner you start, the better you get. So you get there. So if you have to drive 100 miles 
doesn't start until you start. Yeah. The distance doesn't get shorter. It just matters you're going to finish it sooner. So had I started my 100-mile walk at 26, I'd have finished it a lot sooner than if I started it at 36. Who was the first mentor you actually started really believing in and listening to? My first mentor is still my mentor. His name is Natan Schaefer. He's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and was a chaplain for Jewish services at the prison. I got invited. I ended up in his program by chance. There was a guy that I, I helped out and I walked by. He was in the room. So I went in to say hi to him. And he was sitting with Natan and he introduced me. Then I just something cool about Natan. So I started, I said, what are you doing? He said, studying. I said, well, can I study with you? He said, sure. And I didn't notice the tefillin or the coat or the hat or the yarmulke, none of that stuff. I'm from Boston. I didn't live, in, I didn't live around Jewish people, so I didn't even recognize the stuff. And then he taught me acceptance. He taught me forgiveness. He taught me accountability. He taught me gratitude. He taught me helpfulness. All the stuff I needed to do to be human. Mm. Nobody ever taught me how to be human. They taught me how to be a warrior. They taught me how to be a gladiator. They taught me how to not cry. They taught me how to hurt people. It taught me a lot of stuff in my life. Nobody ever taught me how to be human. He did. It wasn't about me becoming Jewish, him becoming black, him understanding my plight or me understanding his. He was just somebody who had lessons. That was somebody in need of those lessons. So sometimes I tell people, your greatest teacher might not look like you. There's a good chance that he won't. And if you ask me now, who would I trade Natan for? I say nobody because he got it done. So, and he was dead and he was authentic and he was real and we're still friends to this day. I got, I got a book in my room that his wife gave me. I have the two, it's the oldest thing that I have. When I was in his program, I started reading the Bible. Everybody reads Psalms. Psalms 23. Yeah, I have walked through the valley of death. I should feel no evil. My crazy stinking self, when I got the helm book, I wanted to read Psalms 23, but I figured they all went in sequence. So I said, I'll start at one and I'll read up to 23. And it's all, none of the Psalms go in order. They have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> so I read from one to like 29 or whatever. And I didn't really like Psalms 23. It wasn't, didn't do it for me. Psalms 3, I loved. You know I'm saying, God, break the teeth of my enemy, smack him in the mouth. I got a guy that'll punch in the face. I said, I'm good right there. <laughs> so I was big on that. So his wife, Natan's wife brought me a Psalms book, a Hebrew Psalms book, and it has all the Psalms, I think all the Proverbs, definitely all the Psalms. That was my thing. And she got me that book in 1995. Hmm. And it's, I brought it home from prison and it is sitting on my shelf in my bedroom. It is the oldest thing I own. Initially, it was slated to go into my grave with me because I was selfish. <laughs> Then along the way, I realized that um, I should give this book to my son because I didn't want the book to die with me. So I have two books, one I got from Natan and one I got from Father Martin. And they're my two oldest possessions. They're the only two things, well, three things I brought home from prison with me that I still have. And that is wherever I go, they sit at the foot of my bed. And I put a bookshelf. I'll buy a bookshelf exclusively for this book. Man, I love that. I love that so much. Was there a you said these are the two things you brought back from prison. What made you want to be someone different when you came back from prison? Keywords, what made me want to be somebody different? I'm not different. I'm Andre. And Andre Appreciate. is just Andre. And Andre, when I was a kid, what people didn't know, I grew up in the hood and rock and roll and rock music. 
I used to be 14, 15. There was a, there was a radio station, 106.7, Bedtime Magic with Alan, David Allen Boucher. I don't know if that was syndicated or not, but it was like a soft rock station. They play like Aerosmith, the Eagles. They play all this soft rock stuff. And I loved it. It was just like mellow music. It was just people singing mellow music. All my friends listened to all the black music, all the hip stuff for the time. These people playing oldies but goodies. And I loved it. And people would come in my room and they would turn the radio on and it'd be 106.7. What is that? You need to put it on this, on the black station. And I would always go to sleep to David Allen Boucher, Bedtime Magic. Didn't care about nobody else's music. That was mine. And it wasn't the same as everybody else. But that's what I liked. And when I came home, I did what I liked. I wanted to do help people, I help people. If I wanted to go someplace, I go someplace. If I wanted to make friends with people, I make friends with people. I didn't need the status quo telling me who I can and can't be friends with. That's how I grew up. You can't be friends with white people. You can't be friends with these people. You can't go to this neighborhood. I grew up in Boston. It was extremely segregated. There were certain parts of the city we weren't allowed to go to. And it's just crazy. I came home from prison. I was 32. I was going to the airport one time, and we had to drive through South Boston, which was off limits when I was a kid. Yeah. We said, usually on the high, they said, we're going to cut through Southie to get to the airport. And we cut through Southie, and it was a beach. It was like a, a beach with water and sand. I said, when did they put that in? They said, what do you mean? I said, when did they put that in? They said, that's always been there. Hmm. I'm 32 years old, and I didn't know we had a beach inside the city limits because I was forbidden from going to that side of town. It just wasn't allowed. Yeah. And I came home from prison. Now I can go. I flipped out. I love the water. We used to go to some dirty-ass pond 20 minutes <laughs> south of the city. And all the black kids went to the pond, Hogan's Pond, dirty, horse shit in the water, you name it. But that's where we had to go swim. And inside the city limits, there was a damn beach. Blew my mind. So being stifled and status quo telling you where you can and can't go and what you can and can't do and what you should and shouldn't like. My son, he fences. My son plays cricket. My son reads and writes in Latin. My son plays basketball. I'm saying he likes to dance, but I'm not telling him he has to dress like this, look like this, act like this, because those are my norms and my stereotypes. I'm trying to pass to him. Pick what you go to the store, pick what you like. I love that. I think I a clarifying question. When I say uh, what made you want to be different when you left, I don't think I meant from a, from a physical standpoint, because I think Andre is always going to be Andre, but I think there is always a point where somebody wakes up. They either want to be a better version of themselves or they want to evolve and they feel like just a sense of responsibility or purpose. So I think that's what I was more curious about. Okay. Like when did, when did you wake up? I woke up all those after the Wednesday nights in the room with the town. When I was sitting in the town, all those, all those Wednesday nights is when I woke up. My consciousness, as we would call it, came to me then. So... And then on June 12th, 1999, I got saved, as they call it. And that's a whole nother level of freedom. I was free a year and a half before they let me out of prison. I got my freedom with Natan and my mind and my clarity and my purpose, how the world works, why I'm here. I got that with Natan sitting in a prison cell. Mm. So I was free 18 months prior to they letting me out. And I got my freedom. I know people who are in the world today who aren't free. They're slaves to work. They're slaves to stereotypes. 
as slaves to cultures that they don't even believe in and customs. So simply not being in jail doesn't mean you're free. So if you said to me, Andrew, we'll let you run around the world and be blind, or we have to put you back in jail and be free, take me to jail. I don't want to be a zombie. I can do more good from behind a prison wall, free, than somebody who's in a zombie state walking around out here. That's powerful, Andre. That's a very powerful distinction. So why do you think being free allows you to help the world? Once you're free, you can see problems, you can see pain, you can create solutions. If you're trapped in your own self, in your own little matrix, in your own little habitat, self-imposed prison, if you're in a self-imposed prison, you can't help anybody. You're not thinking, you might write a check, you might show up to a dinner, but you're not going to make major change. You have to be free first to deliver freedom. So Harriet Tubman got free. Then when she got free, she went back and she could share freedom with people who never experienced it. But you get a slave who'd never been free, you can't teach somebody else how to be free. So she had to attain it first. She had to feel it first. And she can give that emotion to the next person. Not everybody wanted it. Not everybody took it. But she couldn't give that what she wasn't. Yeah. So there are people who are in this world right now who are just in nice cars, in nice houses, in nice clothes, stressed out. We can look at the Michael Jackson, favorite entertainer of all time. Self-imposed. I, w- I wouldn't say suicide, but he definitely contributed to his own death. What he had to do to be alive. That was a lot of pressure being Michael Jackson. Was he free? He couldn't go to the store. He couldn't go to the mall. He couldn't even go to sleep on his own. That's not freedom. I love uh, what you said. Freedom is something you feel. Yeah. Because I think that changes what it means. It changes how you get it. It changes what it means. It changes what you can do with it. And it's a much more liberating way of looking at the concept of freedom when you realize it's something that you have to internalize before you can externalize. Was Michael Jackson free? No. He lived in a... He lived in a he lived in a really nice cage, in a really big cage, really star-studded cage, but he wasn't free. When you don't have the freedom to share your thoughts, you don't have the freedom to impact lives, you have to do everything from a veil or from behind a closed door and up in an upper room. I mean, we were meant and born and bred to be amongst each other. Humans, before these buildings, before these cars, before this technology, humans were raised to be amongst each other. Wherever tribe you came from, from the mountains, from the Serengeti, wherever you came from, it was groups of people working together. We've gotten more distance with these buildings and these walls and this technology, but humans at their base self were meant to be together. So you take somebody, that's what prison was. Prison was a punishment to take you out of society. We put you away from people. You couldn't be around people. And isolation is prison inside of prison. It's the ultimate punishment. We're going to lock you in a room by yourself with no human contact. That's the ultimate punishment. So now you take Michael Jackson, you take Prince, you take any of the rest of these people. They're in prison. They're in the worst prison. They are isolated. Then there are those people who function amongst people, around people every day, but in their minds, they're in prison. They don't feel connected. They feel invisible. And trust me, that's why I'm so good or I connect so readily to people with suicidal states. I've had it. I've lived it. I've been through it. So I understand the invisible mindset. 
The invisible mindset is the step you take before suicide because you have to believe that nobody sees you and they won't miss you. So when I see people who are in suicidal states, I can see their pain. I can identify with it. I can walk them back from it. And people are using drugs. They're not using drugs because it's fun. It's a, an escape from something else, being invisible. They're trying to hide from their pain, whatever that pain might be. So we have to speak to their pain and give them vision so they can see themselves. Then those are the best outreach workers. Those are the best interventionists. Those are the best musicians. Yeah, man. That's why, and I love that. What, one thing I'm inspired by, Andre, is how in tune you are with the pain you've experienced in your life and how you can see that in others. And you're helping a lot of people. And I'm personally inspired by that. Let's talk about the work you're doing right now with the prisons in, um, in South Carolina. Okay. What would you like to know about prison in South Carolina? Uh, well, fill me in. If for someone who doesn't know much about it, I'd love to know what's going on there and how you're, how you're getting involved and how we okay. can help. The prison system in America, I'm not going to call it broken because that's not even a relative term. It doesn't work. It's not producing that in which we want it to produce, better people. It's called a Department of Corrections, but nothing's being corrected. So there's a lot of rationale and reasoning and stories and books and theories. I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm an entrepreneur. What are the measurables? Yeah. What, what, is, what is it costing? What is it producing? That's the end of the story. So prisons in America, we're at 2.2 or 2.3 million people incarcerated. We know the stats. And people sit in prisons and they're not safe. They're extremely dangerous. People are being harmed and hurt daily. At the end of all of that, they're being, people are being released back in society and they're harming and hurting other people. The average prisoner stays in jail whatever amount of time. But I would say nine out of 10 live in fear their entire time inside. Fear of rape. Fear of murder, fear of robbery, fear of assault, fear of loneliness. There's tons of fears that go in being in prison. So you take somebody, you stick them in prison for 10 years, and they have all these phobias that are real. And they come home after 10 years, and you throw them back in society and say, make it. Technology has changed. Your family has changed. You've changed. The government's changed. So telephones talk to you. Buses talk to you. <laughs> all kinds of stuff has happened. And trying to keep up and get up is hard. And you've never resolved any of the reasons that initially put you in jail. Holding somebody for 10 years doesn't fix anything. It just compounds it. Yeah. So you've taken somebody with compound issues and let them back in the street completely twice unprepared. So what happens is a lot of violence, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of trauma, which leads to a lot of assaults. So in South Carolina, there's... A whole group, the whole prison system is just like, like any other, stressed out, understaffed, people overburdened with trauma, and they attack each other. Last April, there was an attack or a riot, whatever you want to call it, and 24 people got stabbed. Mm. The CEOs came up the block. It was 20, long story short, there was 24 bodies on the ground. Seven were dead, 17 were injured. It was the worst riot or the worst murders in the 25 years going back in the DOC. They locked down the entire prison system. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 90% of the people are locked in cells. April, May, June, July, August, five months. One of the staff people, Ms. Nina Staley, who runs prison programs, saw me at a conference. And when she saw me speak, she said, Andre, that was a great speech, but can you really do that shit? 
<laughs> she says, that was great theory, but can you do it? I said, what are you talking about? She says, we have a prison system in South Carolina that needs somebody who can do what you just said. Not talk about it, but do it. I said, well, I actually do it too. So I grabbed the two-man team, three of us. We went to South Carolina, and the director, Mr. Sterling, um, the deputy director, Mr. McCall, and Ms. Daly, we, we go in, and we went through 10 prisons in six days, spoke to over 8,000 prisoners. They came out their cell in masses of two, three hundred at a time, which they haven't done since the riots in July, April. Not one fight, not one argument, not one shoving match. Wow, and man. when we did in person, we spoke to their pain. We spoke to their purpose. We spoke to their potential. We spoke to their wrongdoing. We just kept it real with them, as we say, kept it 100. When we finished, the state said, you know something? Those guys did something that hadn't been done before. And these prisoners responded in a way that had never been done before. They said, to their credit, they said, can we create a program with those guys, for these guys? And for the first time in DOC history of this country, corrections history, the Department of Corrections in South Carolina has made a deal with myself, a former felon who did 14 years, convicted twice of attempted murder in prison, gang leader. The Department of Corrections has created a contract with former felons to actually come in and run a housing unit. Mm. So what does that mean? That means I'm hiring 15 people total, most of them former felons, and they're going to take their prison staff out of the block. We're going to go in the block and we're actually going to run the block. Now, we have to go through DOC training, so we'll have key control. We'll open and close doors. We'll do feeding. We'll do rec. We'll do, we'll do everything. I don't know about the count, but we'll do everything maybe minus the count time. I don't know about that. But we're going to physically 100% run the housing unit. That's amazing, man. Yeah, tell me more about that. So, what- so the, the thing is, it's never been done before, any place in DOC. And my thing is, for if you want corrections and corrections department, you need part of the problem at the table. So we're at the table as former felons who've lived it, and we're collaborating with the Department of Corrections. It's not us riding in on a white horse. We're working together, and we're going to take their expertise and our expertise, their experiences and our experiences, and we're going to bring forth a program that never existed before. And it's going to have all the components that it needs to have from a correction safety point to a realism on the ground point, put it together. And if we can take, they're giving us the 92 worst prisoners, for lack of a better term, in the state, violent gang members, gang leaders, whatever. And the goal is, our measurable is violence reduction. Are they going to stab each other? Are they going to assault each other? Are they going to assault other people? Our goal is one year Zero violent incidences, zero fights, zero stabbings. That's amazing, man. How can we, so how can the listeners or anybody who's, who's engaging with this right now help you? Okay, there's, there's always, there's one or two things you can do. The first is, we're, we're in the process of building the web, you can go to my website and send us the information, just sign up, but there's going to be two things we can do. One, you can sign up and say, hey, I want, I want to support you, but I live in Alaska, so I can't fight in South Carolina. So maybe you send, we're going to have a list. Maybe it's blankets, maybe it's computers, maybe it's cups, certain books. You can donate physical things. 
Okay. We have a list of physical things from books to computers to headphones to coats to whatever. Maybe a list of physical things that you could just simply buy and send that will be needed to help support this. Or you can say, like, you do training. You say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a video training course. I'll do five videos, and I'll record them, and I'll send them in. And we'll mm-hmm. have five videos we can play them. And if you might say, you know something, I'll do a live Skype class. I can sign up for five classes, three classes, two classes of 45 minutes apiece, and I'll teach this. Mm-hmm. Put you on Skype and put the guys in the room, and you will teach your class. Maybe you say you're just going to do a podcast with them. Maybe you can't teach a class. You say, I'll do a podcast with the guys from the prison. Mm. And I'll put anywhere from one to 60 guys in a room, and it'll be a podcast. And mm. you do a podcast with them. So there's the tangibles. And there's always the old-fashioned, you can just send money. So yeah. you don't have the time to do a podcast. You don't really want to go to the store and buy books. You just want to swipe a credit card and send a check or whatever it is. You can do that, and we'll use that money to buy the things that are on the list. Well, we'll make all these links available because I, I, I really do love, man, you just, you've got to, you're driven by something that is, like, I, I remember when I first saw you speak, and I think that's what drew me into you. You're just driven by something that I'm personally inspired by. Um, the key okay. is, it's never been done before. Yeah. And if we do this, and we're, when we're, and we're successful, and we will be, the $500 billion program called Corrections is going to have to say there's a new model. And the new model produces zero violence. It produces educated people, healed people who are ready to come home. That's amazing. So if we have success with this demographic in this prison, then what happens is your listeners will say to their state, and state reps or state people or state government, there's a program in South Carolina that works. And it's taking the worst, for lack of a better term, of these and making them the best. And my ultimate goal is two years, whenever it is, that at some point, the president of the United States, wherever it is at the time, this one or the next, I was hoping on the last one, calls me to D.C., sits me down and says, Andre, we've had a drug czar. We've had a this czar. You're going to be the prison czar. Fix the American prison system. That's, that's my ultimate goal. That I get called to D.C. And the guy in the White House says, we finally figured it out. You're the guy that fixed the prison system. Go. And I've been ready for that conversation for like 10 years. All right. Well, I'm, I'm inspired. So we're going we're gonna to send as much love we can your way. Andre, man, this has been such a, an amazing interview. I appreciate you just showing up the way you do because I think uh, I'm, I'm walking away from this just thinking that I need to go call my mom. That's the first, thing I need, that's the first thing I need to be doing right now. I got one last question for you. In the midst of everything you've experienced from your, from your days in prison to all the work you're doing now, how do you stay grounded? I stay grounded because, A, I have more work to do. If I quit now, I'm the lead guy in this prison movement. So if I quit, it's going to take another 15 years or 10 years to get the next Andre in place. And that's not fair to the guys and women in prison or their kids or our society. There's a lot of talent behind these walls. There's a lot of solutions to problems behind these walls. And we need to get these guys and these women back to their families and back in our communities contributing. We have 2.2 million people who are not contributing to the greater good of our country slash our world. So imagine if we get these 2.2 million people going in the right way. 
that's just catastrophic in the things that can be done in yeah. a great sense. So what keeps me grounded is my friends. My friends have high expectations of me and they expect a lot of me. When I go to sleep at night, I don't want to disappoint them. I didn't have anybody to disappoint as a child. I didn't feel anybody cared if I showed up or didn't show up as a child. Now I believe I matter. And now I believe that I can contribute. And now I believe that my pain has a purpose and a place. And I want your listeners to know that regardless of what you've been through, your pain has a purpose and a place. And we will help you repurpose it and find a place it's supposed to be. It might not be in prisons. It might be with your own kids or your nieces and nephews. It might be with your mom or dad. It might be with the lady at the corner. Don't go outside hugging strange people on the sidewalk just to make yourself feel better. Be strategic. Think it through. And if you need help, um, just give us a shout and we'll help you think it through. But um, success is possible. I love that. Well, Andre, you are an inspiration, my friend, and I'm very grateful that we got to spend this time together. Everybody, all the resources and links that Andre mentioned for his work with prisons will be available in the show notes. We'll have Andre's contact information, his phone number, his passport number, his, his social security right. number, everything in the show notes. I, <laughs> I, got, I got one thing. One call you need to make is to your chapter, the, the daycare when I was there, and Jennifer. Because when I came to your chapter, I spoke at probably five or six places, volunteer. And it's super important to me that I get a chance to go back because I talked to some little kids in elementary school, some kids in drug programs. I need to go back to some of them places and show my face again. Because in their lives, so many people have shown up once and gave a great speech and disappeared, never to be heard from a scene again. And it's so important that they see my face again. Mm -hmm. I mean... I'll, I'll pay my ticket. I'll get on. I'll get there. I just need y'all to, because they have the list of the schools. If you can coordinate, let's get set up a day. I just, not a speech, just a walk through and a hug and a high and a wave. And it will just reinforce the true message that I gave them two months ago. So that. if you can do that for me, I'll be super grateful because I've been All trying right. to coordinate it from here and it's been hard. But I want to come back down, spend a day, run around to those schools and just say hi to those kids again. Let them okay. know. I said to you, I meant. Let's see what I can do, Andre. Appreciate everything again, brother. But everybody, that's a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your friend, Andre. And from us, stay grounded. Stay grounded. We'll be talking soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.